may recognize this verse, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 says this. He who does not love, he who does not love, does not know God. For God is love. Notice that just by knowing God, you will permeate love. Because knowing God means you know love. If you don't know love, then you don't know God because God is love. He doesn't just have love. He doesn't just act in love. He doesn't just show love. He is love. God is the nature of love and love is in God and it's who he is. That means that everything that God does is directly a manifestation of his love. Everything that God does is motivated by love. If he is love, that means that he can never do anything out of hatred. He can never do anything for his own benefit. He can never do anything just to benefit himself. Now, we live in a world that does not identify with that kind of love. We think we know love, but one thing you have to learn is when you read this Bible, it's in kingdom talk. It's not in democratic talk. It's not in republic talk. It's not in monarchy talk. It's not in dictator talk. It's in kingdom talk. This is defined by a kingdom where you have a king and everyone lives according to what the king says. Now, a lot of us don't like that idea because we have never seen a king operate in love like God can operate in love. The only kings that we have seen have blown it. I mean, the very first king that we get in the Bible, King Saul, blows it. He starts out good, but he eventually chooses to live for himself and for the people rather than really why God has placed him there. We get the next king, David. David was a good king, killed a giant, you know, and and did all kinds of awesome things, uh, you know, reestablished Jerusalem as God's people, God's nation. But even he blew it. Even he messed up. We've never had a king on this planet. And so that's why we're operating today in a democracy, a democratic republic, because we think if we give power to the people, then we're in real liberty. I want to tell you what liberty truly looks like. Liberty really is living for someone that has your best interests at heart. That's what liberty is. Imagine living for someone that every time they made a decision and every time they were motivated to do something, it was in your best interest, whether you thought so or not. And that's what it's like living in a kingdom. How do we end up in this state? Well, God was a king in heaven. And he wanted to establish a natural realm that looked like and reflected a spiritual realm called heaven. And so he creates the earth, Genesis chapter 1. Let there be light, and there is light. God speaks light into existence. The earth was created and without form. But the Holy Spirit quickly begins to move. And then God says, let there be trees. Let there be day and night. Let there be cattle. Let there be fish in the sea, birds in the air. And then he gets down to verse 26 in Genesis chapter 1. And he says, let us create 
man, you and I, in our image, in our likeness. Now, image and likeness does not mean to look like me physically. It means literally to function like me. That means everything we're capable of doing, they're capable of doing. They are designed to rule and to operate on the earth and have dominion on the earth, just like I have dominion in heaven. So God creates man in his image, in his likeness. Let them have dominion, Genesis 1.26 tells us. Let them have dominion. What is dominion? That means to manage, control, dominate. Man was, was designed to control. Man was designed to rule. Man was designed to dominate what God created him to dominate. To control, to rule over. Rule over what? Fish of the sea, birds of the air, everything that creeps on the earth and over all the earth. And then we get down to verse 28 and it says, so God created. So he had this talk. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are discussing this thing. And then he does what he says he's going to do. Creates man in his image, in his likeness, to rule, to control, to dominate, to manage the garden that he placed him in. And notice in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, man's not running around looking, looking for heaven. Show me one time, Adam and Eve, we're saying, all right, when's Jesus coming? When are we all going to heaven? When are we going to go and be with God? Where's my mansion? They were not, they were not. Designed to think that way. The only thing they're thinking about is let's take care of what God has placed us in control over. Let's protect and guard the garden. Because we have dominion. Who's naming the animals? Adam and Eve. Why? Because they have control. They have dominion. They're the authority in the earth. So God is not doing anything in the earth without using Adam and Eve. He's not coming down and saying, get out of the way, I'll I'll take care of that. Then a snake shows up, Genesis chapter 3. And Adam and Eve look helpless. Okay, now evil has shown up. You notice that, that there has always been evil and good. Even when God created the earth, evil was in there when he created it. This isn't something new. And God was never concerned about it. God never came down to Adam and Eve and warned them about the snake. He never said, now watch out. There's a snake in that garden and he's going to come get you. He's going to try to attack you. He's going to try to call me a liar. He's going to try to tell you the opposite of what I've been telling you this whole time. I'm telling you, that tree, that tree's no good. Don't eat from it, but he's going to try to entice you. We don't see that dialogue. We don't see that conversation at all. At all. Why? Because Adam and Eve already had everything they needed to overcome the enemy, overcome the snake, who we know is the devil, the serpent, who was cast out of heaven, was once in heaven with God. You would think, I mean, this is how you and I would think. If we gave someone control over something and we had an enemy where we were and then they left and showed up where they were, you know you would be calling that guy up and saying, no, look out. This guy, he tried to, he tried to overtake me. He tried to, you know, control me. He got all prideful and wanted to be lifted up higher than me. And now he's down there with you. So watch out because he might try to do the same thing. 
No conversation. Doesn't once happen. Why? Because God gave Adam and Eve everything they needed to whip that devil in that garden. His word. I mean, if Adam and Eve would have simply obeyed the command, guard and protect the garden, that means that something's coming to try to come against you in this garden. You don't have to guard and protect things if there's no enemy. Guard, protect it, take care of it. And then he also gave them a word. Do not eat of the tree. So if they do not eat of the tree, the, 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 the snake has no control over them whatsoever. But we know what happened. Adam and Eve sinned, ate of the fruit. Sin nature comes in. And now all of a sudden we think that God has backtracked on his plan in Genesis 1.26. Sin nature comes in, everything is getting destroyed, everything immediately becomes, uh, starts decaying. The, the life of God was so strong in man that man is living for years. There's a guy in there that lived for 969 years, even after the curse. That's how strong the life of God was in mankind. And God realizes in Genesis chapter 6, we've got to do something about this. Evil has taken over. We've got to do something. So he finds a man named Noah. Noah needs you to build me an ark. And not like this movie that's out right now. With a bunch of silliness. The story is a little bit different. He commands Noah to build an ark. Why? Because Noah and his family were the only righteous ones. Left on the earth. What does righteous mean? That means someone that simply obeys God at his word. Well, I thought you had to accept Jesus into your heart to be righteous. Well, that's funny because Jesus hasn't died yet. Yet Noah's righteous. Abraham's righteous. David's a righteous king, the Bible says. Then Jesus hasn't died yet. Because righteousness is simply obeying God's word being in right standing with his authority because God is the final say period when he gave control to man he didn't give control to man to do whatever he wants he gave control to man to rule and dominate as he rules from heaven so if I'm going to rule on the earth I've got to be submitted to his authority so Noah shows up God wipes out the planet with a big flood Noah builds the ark. His descendants are saved. Then we get to a man named Abraham who can't have any children. 75 years old, married. His wife has been barren all these years. And he says, you're going to be the father of many nations. What is God trying to do? He's trying to start over with his original plan in Genesis chapter 1. See, you and I, when something breaks or a plan doesn't go our way, we deviate and try to do something else. God tries to fix the thing that got broken. God never deviated. God never got up there in heaven and said, all right, well, this whole man controlling and ruling on earth thing didn't work out. So uh, let's, uh, Jesus, you go down. You're going to go to the cross. Uh, you're going to save them. And that's going to allow them all just to come back to heaven. Forget the whole earth thing. Yeah, we've heard that for how long? Thought that for how long? You accept Jesus into your heart so you can one day go to heaven. 
But God, through this entire thing, I mean, his people end up in slavery in Egypt, calls a man named Moses and does what? Pulls him out and gets him to the promised land. I mean, he's just trying to start this thing over. But he quickly realized, okay, I can't do anything for them. Well, that's amazing. God can't do something. I mean, God tried to come up with commandments. That didn't work. That just caused people to sin more. All that the commandments did, all that the law does is just identify you're doing wrong. It doesn't help you obey it. It just identifies thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill. So if I kill or if I steal, I'm wrong. And this is the right thing to do. But it does not empower you to do the right thing. There's nothing about the Ten Commandments that says, all right, here you go. Here's the ability to not sin. But God realized, back there in Genesis chapter 1, I gave dominion to man. But I'm a spirit in heaven. But I'm the only one that can save them. Man can't save themselves because they have the sin nature. But... But if I can find a way to get myself in flesh, then I can save them. Why? Because God cannot and will not do anything in this earth without using mankind. Oh, I thought God was in control. He's only in control of one thing. His word. And God is the king. And God does not ever go back on his word. If God ever went back on one word that he put in the Bible, then we could call him a liar about everything else. If man, if God were to fail in holding to a promise that he gave, then how would we believe any promise he gives? Well, he gave man dominion, so he can't go back on that. So he has to find a way to get himself in flesh. And so here comes Matthew. In the book of Matthew, we see a young lady named Mary who's about to get married to a man named Joseph, a virgin. He's never had any children. And an angel comes and says, you are going to bear God in the flesh. You're going to give birth to him. And this man is going to grow up and he's going to save all of mankind. He's going to redeem the kingdom that was lost because Adam and Eve weren't wandering around trying to figure out how to get to heaven. They were in a kingdom. They didn't lose heaven. They didn't have a religion or some belief system. They weren't denominational. Adam and Eve weren't Baptists. Adam and Eve weren't Pentecostals. Adam and Eve weren't Presbyterians or Methodists. They obeyed God. They lived for God and obeyed his word. Religion is a result of sin. Religion is man's attempt to get back to the kingdom. That's all it is. Even Christianity itself is just an attempt to try to be like God. We have dumbed down Christianity just like any of the other. I mean, most Christians don't even obey the own, their own code of Christianity. 
as good as some other religions do. I know other religions that are way better at praying than I am. They know what time they're going to pray. They know which way to face. They have an exact prayer they pray every single time. It's just, it's just an attempt to get back. But God has already restored it. He sends himself in flesh, born of Mary. His name is Jesus. So let's go on here, since I've got you caught up. Verse four or verse eight, read it one more time. He who does not love God does not know God for God is love. Verse nine in this, the love of God was manifested towards us. God has demonstrated his love to us. And everything that God does is motivated by love. He manifested towards us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Before you come to know Jesus, you're not living. You're not living because life only comes through Jesus Christ. Life only comes. He says, I am the door. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. God has sent his only begotten son. Now I want you to ponder this. God is the creator and owner of all the universe. Think about everything he owns. Every planet. Every tree. Every plant. Every animal, every fish, every bird, every mountain, every lake, every valley, every stream, every river, every mineral, every molecule, every atom. He owns all of it. It belongs to him. And of all those things, he has multiple, many of it. There's not just one mountain out there. There's many mountains. There's not even just one planet. There's many planets. There's not just one solar system. There's many solar systems. There's not many. There's there's not just one sun. There's a bunch of suns. There's not just one moon. All these other planets, all these other solar systems, there's so many. And God gave away. The only thing he had one of. Now, it's easy to give something away when you've got another one of it. Go ask my son. He's three years old and he doesn't like giving up the only crayon in his hand, but he'll surely share another crayon when he knows, Okay, I got three back here in my pocket. You don't know about right now. Sure, you can have the right even one of the red anyways. I got the blue. But everybody hates giving up the one thing they have. That's a true test. You only have one. Can you give it away? Can you let it go? One. This verse says, His only begotten Son. Only. We know John 3.16, For God so loved the world... That he gave his only 
Only had one. And he gave that up. Now, sometimes it, it, it might be easy to give up something. Even if it's the only thing, when you know that the person you're giving to, giving it to is going to take care of it, just like you would. Yeah, this is the only car that I have, but I'm going to give it to you because I know you, you take care of cars. But can you give away the only thing that you have to someone with no guarantee that they're going to treat it the way you would treat it? In fact, could you give away the only one thing that you had and know that they are going to tear it up? They're going to trash it. They're going to devalue it. They're not going to take care of it. They're not going to respect it. They're not going to honor it. And God gives up His Son, only Son, gives Him to a world, and what do we do with Him? Beat Him. Tear open His back. Can't even recognize Him anymore. Despise Him. Reject Him. A lamb slain. Hang him on a cross for everybody to see as a murderer. And he did nothing. And God gave up his only son to a bunch of people that he knew are going to trash my gift. Why? Because God is motivated by love. He knew the price was worth it. I hope you recognize that the price is worth it. Let's keep going. Verse 10. In this is love. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? Propitiation. That means that He paid the price that you owed. He stepped in and said, I'll take care of it. The debt that's owed, I got it. So the next time you see them, you don't see someone that owes you anything because I took care of it. Go to John chapter 3 verse 16. We just quoted it a minute ago, but I want you to see it. The thing that I want you to recognize today is that God's love is great. In fact, you you will never be able to experience all of his love, and you'll never understand the fullness and the magnitude of his love. Because to understand all of love would mean that you would understand all of God. But not being able to know the fullness of something doesn't keep me from trying to find out. And that's where a lot of people have stopped. Well, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our... That doesn't mean that he doesn't want you to try to think like him. 
No, we use that as an excuse. You know, I just guess I'm never going to understand. Well, why don't you get it as word? In fact, Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3 and Colossians chapter 1. He said, I want you to have spiritual wisdom and understanding, revelation, knowledge of who he is. What's he saying? You need to try to find out. We ought to spend the rest of our lives trying to understand and know everything about God that we can Not just sit around and say, well, I guess I won't ever know. You need to know. You need to find out. And God wants you to know. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved, so loved, so loved. I mean, it'd be different if you just say God loved the world. But it doesn't say that. It says, for God so loved the world that. That. That four-letter word right there. That. Qualifies the love. It doesn't just say, for God loved the world. It says, for God so loved the world that what comes after the word that reveals how much he loved you. The words that come after the word that identify the so. For God so loved you, the world, that how much did he love me? That he gave his only thing that he only had one of. Knowing that we would trash it. That's how much he loves you. Don't, you, you won't ever understand that. We won't ever understand the fullness, the complexity of that verse right there. Football players put it on their face. And we wear t-shirts and bracelets. And, and we quote it all the time. We all know. But we don't know. We just don't know. For God so loved. We're talking about a love so high. A love so high. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever would believe on him would not perish. But the result is that we would have life with him everlasting. Look at this in the New Living Translation. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This verse isn't an identification of just God's love, but it's how he loved us. Because love is more than just a word. In our culture... Love has multiple definitions. We say, if you love me, you'll do this for me. But God's word says, since I love you, I'll do this for you, expecting nothing in return. See, the world has skewed the word love. In fact, in the Bible, for the word love, there are seven different definitions for it. 
Throughout the Bible, there are seven different ways the word love is used. There's a brotherly love. There's a romantic love. There's a love uh, that you just casually have. And then there's a agape love, which is God's kind of love that no one can show you except for God himself. And on and on and on. There, there's multiple definitions, multiple translations for it. That's how complex the word love is. And this is how, because love without actions isn't really love. I can say I love you, but until I show you, until I demonstrate it, until I manifest it, I don't really love you. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We want to define this love. And God gives us a definition. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is uh, what we know as the love chapter. Paul writes about love. Paul explains what this love looks like. In the New King James Version, in verse 4, it says this, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 8, love never fails. Look at this in the Amplified Version. Love endures long and is patient and kind. Love never is envious, nor boils over with jealousy, is not boastful or vainglorious, does not display itself haughtily. It is not conceited, arrogant, and inflated with pride. It is not rude, unmannerly, and does not act unbecomingly. Love, God's love in us, does not insist on its own rights or its own way, for it is not self-seeking. It is not touchy or fretful or resentful. It takes no account of the evil done to it. It pays no attention to a suffered wrong. It does not rejoice at injustice and unrighteousness, but rejoices when right and truth prevail. Love bears up under anything and everything that comes, is ever ready to believe the best, of every person. Its hopes are fadeless under all circumstances, and it endures everything without weakening. Love never fails, never fades out, or becomes obsolete, or comes to an end. This is the love of God. This is how God designed love to operate. In God is love. So this is a job description of who God is and how he operates. Now, we don't fully understand the love of God because we feel way too much condemnation. That's why we have uh, believers, Christians, that still call themselves sinners. Well, I'm just a sinner. Just a sorry old sinner, but thank God I'm saved. Thank God I prayed the prayer. No, you don't understand the love of God. You don't understand the price that was paid. Because not only did he save you from hell and get you to heaven, he saved you from the sin 
that would send you to hell. And he brought heaven and put it in you so you could demonstrate heaven on earth. He didn't take care of hell. Hell is a result of how you live here. And heaven is a result of how you live here. He didn't just take care of the result. He, he took care of the very thing that would send you there. No, you're not a sinner. If Jesus Christ is your Lord, not just your Savior, because Savior is what he did. But Lord is who he is. He is my Lord, and he saved me. He is my Lord. That means I give him all of my life. The price he paid was far too great for me to live the way that I'm living. Well, I I still sin sometimes. That's all right. I can bark like a dog, but that doesn't make me a dog. Just because you sin doesn't make you a sinner. Your life has been completely transformed. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. Because of what he did on that cross, because he rose again three days. You realize if he doesn't rise again, this is all in vain. We might as well just pack it up, go on home and have some food. Just go hit the buffet and have a good old time. If he doesn't come back to life, forget it. This is pointless. But he came back to life. And he gave us that new life. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in me. Brings to life even my moral body. I'm no longer bound by the sin that I was bound by. Look at this in Romans chapter 5. It's one thing to talk about love, husbands and wives. It's another thing to show it, manifest it, and demonstrate it. And God didn't just talk about the love that he has for us. We celebrate this day because he demonstrated the love that he has for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners. Still sinners. Christ died for you. It's a demonstration. It's a demonstration. And he died even while I was still against him. Even while I was still living for everything opposite of what he destined me for. He sent his son. Demonstrated. Showed me. Manifested his love to me. So that I could be with him. Christ died for us. Look at verse 17. Skip on down to verse 17. Romans chapter 5. Verse 17 says, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. Because of what Adam did, we are all born into sin. I know that when we're born, that's supposed to be an exciting event. When your children are born, that's an exciting event. But they're born into sin. 
And there's another birth that needs to take place. A new birth being born again that needs to take place. But because of this one sin, death ruled over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who, re- who receive it, who will live in triumph over what? Sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, he triumphed over sin. Not just hell and the grave, not just death, but the sin that sent me to the grave. So I don't even have to live the way I used to live. And I can now reign in life, the New King James Version says. says that I will reign in life. I will rule. I will dominate. Well, doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound a lot like Genesis chapter 1, verse 26? Doesn't that sound a lot like the dominion and the managing and the control and the authority and the dominating that I should be operating in? Jesus didn't come to get you to heaven. He came to get heaven to earth. He came to get the kingdom that was lost in Genesis chapter 3 back in the earth. And he's placed you back in charge. Placed you back in authority. Now, I know that brings a lot of responsibility. It's a lot easier to listen to the other messages. I just say a prayer and go to heaven. There's nothing I I can do about sickness and disease down here. So you get sick and you don't have the responsibility of praying over your sickness. Because I'm not in control. If God wants to heal me, it's up to him. Maybe God is trying to teach me something with this sickness. So I'll allow it. If God was trying to teach people with sickness, then Jesus was in direct disobedience throughout his entire ministry. Because my Bible says... Jesus went through all the towns, all the villages, healing all sickness and all disease. So if God was trying to teach them a lesson, Jesus is going around and undoing what God's trying to teach them. No, God doesn't teach people through sickness and disease. He's a healer. My Bible says that there's a thief That has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But my God came to bring life and life more abundantly. More abundantly. I mean, any idea or any picture you have of life, it's times that. It's far greater than that. Why? Because God is love. And everything that God does is motivated through and by love. If Jesus had only conquered hell, then we could simply live for heaven. But he didn't conquer just hell. This verse tells me, throw it back up there in the New Living, Romans 5 verse 17, tells me that I will live in triumph over sin and death. Sin and death. I will live in triumph over the thing that will send me to hell as much as 
hell itself. Today, I want us to understand the magnitude of the love of God. The greatness of the love of God. The fullness of the love of God. To comprehend. We're getting ready to show a video here. I do want to let you know if you have children in the room, it is graphic. It's your prerogative. It's your choice if you want to leave them in or not. And I just want to let you know that man will never be able to demonstrate what took place 2,000 years ago. Period. But for you to see to a degree what Jesus went through, the price that was paid, because love is demonstrated. Love is manifested. That's the love of God. Roll the video.
one writer said that the cross is the supreme magnitude of God's love on this one. See, we always thought Jesus hung on that cross. Jesus didn't hang on that cross. God's love hung on that cross. Because love true love is demonstrated is manifested is evident you can see it it's not something you just talk about it's something you show in Ephesians chapter 3 Paul prayed a prayer for the church not for lost people for the church he said then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong and may you have the power to understand As all God's people should. How wide. How long. How high. And how deep. His love is. May you experience. The love of Christ. Though. It is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Though it may be too great to fully understand, Paul prays that we will know the depth, the length, the width, and the height of God's love. That means everything that you can know about God's love, may you understand. May we be rooted in God's love. I tell you what, today the church needs to be rooted in God's love. You need to be rooted in God's love. I don't know why you're here today. I don't know where you came from. I don't know what your background is. I don't know if you know Jesus or you have known Jesus or you thought you knew Jesus. But today, extended to every person in this room is God's love. Because see, a love that is demonstrated is a love that can be experienced. ever experienced the love of God he wants you to experience not just hear about it he wants you to experience his demonstrated love in this God demonstrated his love that even while we were still sinners Christ died 
for us. Say, well, I don't know if I can understand that love. You know, for us guys, love isn't a word we like to talk about a whole lot. But this love was demonstrated to everyone. To the world that has ever existed, that is existing, and that will exist. That's the love of God. And the love of God has been extended to you far beyond just trying to get somewhere after this. And I venture to say there's people in this room that have been living short-sighted of that love and of that price that was paid. Whether you're saved, whether you thought you were saved, whether you need to rededicate your life, whether you're not living to the fullest extent of the love. See, when someone shows you love, there's an action that follows. And sometimes we fall short of that. Sometimes we don't give back in return the love that was given to us and shown to us. Today you'll have that opportunity. every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're still thinking, I don't know if this love is for me. If you're still thinking, I don't... I mean, I've already said this prayer. I've already asked Jesus into my heart. I'm asking you to do more than ask Jesus into your heart because really that's not even what the Bible says. The Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, Now that word confession, for us, in today's language, we think that just means say something. But see, God didn't just say something to us without action, and so we don't say something to Him without action. That word confession actually means in agreement, a binding contract. You might be in here today and you may have confessed one day, but you broke the contract. I want you to do with every head bowed every eye closed I want you to think of the worst thing you've ever done in your life I don't care if you're saved I don't care if it was years ago if it was yesterday the worst thing you've ever done person you slept with, you knew you shouldn't have slept with them. The, the person that you hated, you knew I shouldn't have been hating them. The, the, the worst thing. All the stuff you've done, all the stuff you've said, all the stuff you've drank, all the, the, the cheatful, lying things you've ever done. Now, with your eyes still closed, picture what you just saw in that video that's not even a proper image of what really took place and you tell me if the price wasn't great enough you tell me if Jesus didn't do a good enough job you tell me that there was more that could be done to take care of all the junk in your life. 
price is great, the response ought to be great. The price has been paid, and so we should live like people with a response that this thing's been taken care of. The debt has been paid off. I don't owe anything longer except I owe to make Jesus the Lord of my life. With every head bowed, every eye closed, if you're in this room this morning and you have never confessed Jesus as your Lord, if you said the prayer one day but you didn't understand and know really what was taking place and so you haven't lived your life according to the confession that you made, I want you to raise your hand right now, wherever you're at. Wherever you're at. Today, you make Jesus the Lord of your life. That means you don't walk out of here and have your own will and your own desire and your own way any longer. This is your opportunity to make Him the Lord of your life. This is your opportunity to change on the outside because of what He's done on the inside. This isn't for condemnation. This isn't to make you feel bad. This isn't to try to force you to do something. This is to get you to understand the magnitude and the fullness of the love of God. And you know, my life isn't lining up with Jesus as my Lord. I'm still saying things I shouldn't be saying. I'm still doing things I shouldn't be doing. I'm still acting in a way that's not representing the kingdom of God. You know that. that's you, I want you to raise your hand right where you're at. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand right where you're at. Because today things change. This isn't just any other Easter. I see those hands. You can put them down on my left and on my right. This is your opportunity. What God has done for you is greater than what we've been given back. Matthew chapter 4, we see the the first time Jesus ever ministers, ever preaches a message. And the first word out of his mouth is, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. What does repentance mean? Repentance doesn't mean you come down to an altar. You say a prayer and ask for forgiveness for everything you've done and walk away. Repentance means to change your thinking. It means I think differently. When you repent, when you truly repent, you're not just asking for forgiveness of your sins. You are saying, I am changing the way I think. Because until you change the way you think, you cannot change the way you live. Today, you'll have an opportunity to repent. Before God, you'll have an opportunity to say, I am confessing you as my Lord. And I'm changing the way I think so I can change the way I live. 
I'm going to ask you to be bold. Because Jesus said himself, if you deny me before the Father, I'll deny you. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. We've gotten into a culture that allows people to not fully accept the choice that they're making. If this is going to be real, I need you to get up if your hand was raised and come to the front right now. Get up and come to the front. Hands were raised, so you need to be down at the front. This is an ultimate confession. Everybody in this room is cheering you on. They're on your side. No one's here to laugh. No one's here to make fun. Cheer them on right now. They're coming down. Cheer them on. You're making a decision today. If your hand was raised, you need to be here at the front. There were more hands. He was nailed to that cross. Everybody saw him. Everybody saw him. I'm asking you to be bold. I'm asking you to fully accept. You raise your hand. You said, I need to confess Jesus as my Lord. My life is not an image of Jesus. It's his lordship over my life. that are down here you don't have to look at me but you are making a decision today today you're making a decision that I do everything in my will in my power to renew my mind so I can live the renewed life God has for me You're acknowledging that I'm giving my life to God. He's in full control. He has full ownership. That doesn't mean that you're forced to do what he tells you to do. It's your will. It's your moral will. It's your decision. But today you're acknowledging he's the Lord. Whatever he tells me to do, I'm going to do that. That begins with being in church. You cannot grow as a believer and you cannot make the right steps and right decisions without being in church. That is where he has called his church to be, his people to be. That's where you learn about who you are. That means you're in the word daily, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays. We pick up the Bible, we read it, we learn it. We try to gain as much understanding and what we don't understand, we continue to ask the Holy Spirit for help. That means we develop a prayer life because you can't go through life now without communicating to the one who has called you. Prayer isn't something that you do when you're in trouble. It's what you do to stay out of trouble. It's what you do so you can know the Father's will. If praying was only for people in trouble, then what in the world was Jesus doing praying as much as he did? Because he was never in trouble. But he prayed more than anybody on the face of this planet. Now, I want everybody to say this prayer along with the two that are here. Everyone in this room. This is change today. There's a life change. This will not be the same from here on out. These people will not be the same. But I want everybody in this room 
to pray this same. Say, Father, I accept the great price, the great expression, the great demonstration of love that you displayed for me. Thank you for sending your son to die on that cross, to shed his blood for the remission of my sin. Today, I acknowledge you as my Lord, as my King. I give you my life. I give you my thoughts. I give you my will. I give you my desires. I will truly live for you. You are the Lord. You are the King. You reign eternal. And I acknowledge you as the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll give the Lord a shout. Amen. Hallelujah. God is good. God is good. God is good. Today we're doing something special. We're going to be baptizing those.